gathered by now. Today's Palm Sunday. I think most of you probably knew that already. It's known to uh, many as Passion Sunday. Today's also the final week of Lent uh, for many of the liturgical church traditions, which is a 40-day period of preparation and fasting leading to Easter Sunday, and it includes uh, this week before Easter, referred to as Holy Week, which signifies Christ's journey to the cross. More specifically, Palm Sunday is a day to commemorate and celebrate the triumphal entry, which we just saw in the video, the day that Christ entered Jerusalem as a king, riding in on a donkey, in a colt, uh, the foal of a donkey, Matthew 21, 7. The crowds were cutting palm branches from the trees and throwing them down on the road before him, and they were also waving them in the air. Palm branches symbolized or were a symbol for Jewish nationalism and victory in that time period in their culture. And along with the palm branches, Matthew says in verse 8 that they spread their cloaks on the road, which was a sign of submission to the Messiah. And then finally in verse 9, we see that the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. So he's literally surrounded by people, crowds of people shouting Hosanna, which is an Aramaic word, which means rescue us or save us. In the Hebrew, it means oh save. They were doing this because at the time, the Jews expected an earthly king to come and save them from the Roman occupation. And they believed that Jesus was going to show up as the Messiah and take care of the Roman problem. But as we walk through this narrative, it becomes evident that the Jews were full of expectations for Jesus. And as the events from the triumphal entry on unfold, we see that Jesus was not the Savior of their expectations. In fact, he really uh, pretty much messed up all of their expectations. About 200 years prior to Palm Sunday, the city had experienced another triumphal entry. And it helped shape Jewish thought for centuries under the leadership of Judah or Judas and Simon Maccabee. Uh, the Jews overcame the oppressive Greek rule, uh, the influence of Hellenism that was prevalent in Jerusalem at the time, and they also went in and ritually cleansed the temple in 165 BC. So they were restoring traditional Jewish worship at the temple. The revolt and the rededication of the temple then is the historical basis for the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah that we have today. And there are a lot of parallels between the events of that revolt and the triumph and the events on Palm Sunday as the crowds welcome Jesus into Jerusalem. Almost assuredly, the people on Palm Sunday had echoes of the Maccabean revolt and their consequent victory in mind as they celebrated Jesus' entry into the city, okay? So Jesus didn't invent the idea of a triumphant entry. And in addition to the Maccabean revolt, the Romans at that time had perfected the process of triumphant entries, almost into an art form. They were called parousia, which is a Greek word that means advent, or coming, or arrival. And interestingly enough, it's the same word um, that's used in Scripture to describe the second coming of Christ. For the Romans, these parousia, or arrivals, signaled the entrance of either royalty, or nobility, or victorious commanders, when they would return from a victory in battle. The commander would usually ride in on a war horse, which was uh, symbolic in that culture. The horse was symbolic of war and victory. But Jesus instead, commandeering a young donkey, was orchestrating a royal procession that more closely called to mind the many entrances of uh, Roman dignitaries into Jerusalem. So rather than riding a horse, which was a symbol of a commander victorious in battle, Jesus chose a colt, which was a symbol of peace in that culture. 
okay? And then to further screw up the expectations of the Jews, anytime a foreign dignitary or ruler would enter the city, they would take a trip to the local temple, and they would pay homage to the local gods of that city. That was uh, a tradition. And Jesus, immediately following his triumphal entry on a donkey, goes to the temple, but instead of honoring the activity there, he starts knocking tables over and driving all of the idols and the money changers and their wares out of the temple. He cleanses the temple. Okay? Keep in mind that the crowds were shouting, Hosanna, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, John 12, 13, which was completely appropriate, as these were lines from one of the Psalms, the Psalm of Ascents, 118, uh, that they would shout as people would come in victoriously into the city. So that was sung as pilgrims would be welcomed into Jerusalem traditionally. But on the back half of John 12, 13, we see the crowd also shout, even the king of Israel. Now that wasn't normal. That wasn't what they usually would say. This is a significant aspect of the mindset of the Jews that day that we should pay attention to. They viewed Jesus as a coming king, which of course wasn't wrong in and of itself, but what that meant to them was the expectation of a warrior in the line and tradition of David that would forcefully take control of Jerusalem and reign with religious fervor over the people. And again, the palm branches they were waving were very symbolic to them of a victorious ruler, which is evident in the apocalyptic text from the Maccabean era. You can read it there as well. So from the moment Jesus arrived in the city, right up to the crucifixion, he systematically undermines the expectations of the Jews. All right? They expected a king in the line and, and in the tradition of David to come in on a war horse. And what they got instead was a man in peasant's clothing, accompanied by common people, and riding on a young donkey of peace, which fulfilled the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, we heard on the video, uh, which was 500 years earlier, which said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Okay? They expected validation as God's chosen people. What they got instead was driven out of the temple for their sin. They expected religious pretension and arrogance. What they got instead was a man willing to give himself up for the very people who were mocking him later and beating him and cursing him and ultimately killing him, all right? Remember last week we talked about how important it is that our expectations line up with the voice of God and the word of God. False expectations conjured solely from the imaginations of men ultimately lead us away from the will of God and into a place of confusion and delusion, uh, delusionment, which is exactly what we see in the scriptures when we read this passage with the Jews and their erratic behavior in this holy week involving the Christ. Once the crowd of people realized that Jesus was not meeting their expectations of him and for them, they quickly turned against him, ultimately leading to his crucifixion. Still, as is so often the case, God's sovereign purposes transcend our limited human understanding. And through the most horrendous, most heinous and brutal assault and murder of the only perfect person ever to walk the earth, God's divine plan was unfolding, giving way to the most profound act of love and mercy that the world has ever known. As a kid growing up in church, I used to think that the triumphal entry was this big hoax. You know, the, the, the greatest joke, the worst lie ever perpetrated on anyone. Here was Jesus, full of love and compassion, and he's being celebrated by the masses of people 
only to fall into the angry, murderous hands of those same people a few days later. What a sham. What a, what a farce. I used to think that Jesus was duped into this horrible turn of events and that in the end, there really wasn't anything triumphant about his entry into Jerusalem because it all just ended in this short-lived sort of superficial celebration. Now, a bit older, and maybe not wiser, but certainly with a bit more understanding, I realized that the triumph wasn't in the entry. It was in the exit and the re-entry three days later, his crucifixion and his resurrection, which, of course, we'll talk about next Sunday. The triumphal entry wasn't the triumph. It was merely the beginning of his journey to the cross, which resulted in the greatest triumph this world has ever known. So today and next Sunday, I'd like for us to go on a a short journey to the cross together. I'd like to put ourselves in the sandals of the one who gave his very life for you and me and see what we can glean from this Passion Week, this most extraordinary week in the life of the most extraordinary person ever to set foot on our planet. And why is it significant for us to do that? Other than from an historical perspective and a commemoration of Christ's sacrifice, why spend so much time looking at these events? Well, the answer lies in Jesus' own statements to his disciples well before his crucifixion, before the triumphal entry. Okay, so if we read Matthew 10.38 and then chapter 16, starting on verse 24, we see Jesus getting ready to send his disciples out to minister to people. And he's giving them instructions about what it means to be a true disciple of Christ, a true follower of Christ, a true follower of his. And keep in mind that this is instruction for his disciples then and for all future disciples as well. Okay, as he refers to the enduring to the very end. And he makes several um, statements prophetically looking ahead. And then near the end of his instructions in verse 38 and 39, he says something that must have seemed to me, uh, to them, very peculiar at the time. Matthew 10, 38, he says, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And he makes almost the same statement in chapter 16, verse 24. He says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, if anyone, excuse me, would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Crucifixion is shocking enough as a metaphor for discipleship. And the disciples would have surely known what crucifixion was at that time. But this was before Jesus' sacrifice. Little did they know, particularly in chapter 10, that Jesus was again prophetically looking ahead and saying to them, in effect, watch me and do what I do. Because Jesus certainly knew what was coming, but the disciples didn't. And he said to them, take up your cross and follow me. What a, what a strange thing to say. But he was painting this picture of what was about to transpire. He was saying, to follow me means to crucify yourself, right? Die to the flesh. Die to yourself and live like me. That's taking up your cross, even at the expense of your own desires and your own plans for your own life. When we become followers of Christ, when we take up our cross, we're no longer our own. We belong to and serve at the pleasure of our King. Okay, And I can't help but wonder if the disciples really understood the gravity of what Jesus was telling them in that moment. And in chapter 16, he, he begins to explain to them what was going to happen. But in chapter 10, I don't know that they would have had any clue as to what Jesus was really saying. Of course, 
they understood it later, as we do now. But what must they have thought when he said it? And how often does that happen in our own lives, really? How often do we go through something or experience something that we don't really understand, only to look back later and see very clearly the purposes of God in our circumstance? So that's the significance of this exploration of the journey to the cross. When we examine this week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion, we see the example of how we're supposed to live what our lives are supposed to look like if we're to truly take up our cross and follow him as he's commanded us to, all right? So let's jump in, and we'll see where this journey takes us over the next few minutes. Our text today is in the gospel according to Matthew, starting in chapter 21, verse 1, if you want to turn there, and it'll be up on the screen, I'm sure. Matthew 21, 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Okay? This was in no way what the Jews had expected. Rather than politely and in a very politically correct way honor the activity in the temple, Jesus rather violently and aggressively cleanses the temple of all the sinful activity that has become acceptable in the current culture of the day. This was his first recorded act after entering the city to the shouts of praise and submission by the people. He pulls all the sin in the temple up by the roots and casts it out. Notice, though, that he cleanses the temple He doesn't go to the brothel. He doesn't go to the tax collector's booth. He doesn't go to a bar or the casino or the public square. He goes straight to the temple, the place where God is supposed to dwell, and he violently removes the sin. Let me ask you, what is the temple today? Is it the bar? Is it the internet? Is it this building? Of course not. The temple today, the place where God dwells, if you're a follower of Christ, is right here inside of us. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Look, if we're going to follow Christ's example on this journey to the cross, we have to cleanse the temple. Root out all of the sin. Cast it out. Of course, God is the only one we know who cleanses sin. Only he can remove sin, but we have to upset the tables. 
we have to forsake sinful activity in our own lives that has become acceptable in the culture of our day, even some church culture, by the way, and aggressively resist the voice of the one who continues to tell us that sin is okay. That isn't always easy. In fact, it can be quite difficult, sometimes even painful. Earlier in the same chapter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, I will not be dominated by anything. He's referring to anything that would defile the temple of the Holy Spirit, his body, or take the place of the Holy Spirit by becoming an idol in his own life. Look, I'm convinced that if a large percentage of the church today would spend half as much time examining itself as it does condemning the world, that we'd see a very different attitude toward the church and a lot more people interested in what we're trying to teach. The temple needs to be cleansed. And that isn't a one-time deal either, by the way. Do you know that the account of Jesus making a whip and cleansing the temple in the Gospel of John is not the same account as what we see in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke? The cleansing of the temple in John was two full years before Jesus' death. The cleansing of the temple in the Synoptic Gospels was a week before his death. Some scholars say it probably happened often in Jesus' ministry, but not recorded. Cleansing the temple is something that should happen vigorously and often. Accountability is a part of that. We talked last week about the fact that we are instructed in Scripture to judge each other within the church and let God judge the world outside of the church. So we won't go over all of that again, but keeping the temple clean by honestly and often confronting our own sinful nature Denying ourselves and holding one another accountable within the church is the key to taking up, or is a key, to taking up your cross and following Christ, okay? What's next? Let's continue the story. Back to Matthew 21, verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So the very next act that Jesus does after cleansing the temple is he begins to minister to those hurting around him, right? Clean out the sin and then go to work. The Bible addresses the poor and the needy literally hundreds of times throughout Scripture. God's heart is clearly inclined toward the poor and the needy, obviously in the spiritual sense, but in the physical sense as well. A couple of chapters earlier in Matthew 19, Jesus tells a rich guy who's asking how he could be saved. He says, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then what's he say? And then come follow me. Okay, a significant part of taking up our cross and following Christ is being attentive to the poor and needy. All the people around us, just as Jesus was immediately after he cleansed the temple, okay? We're trying in our church here to start a food pantry. We've done a a good job of feeding our neighbors during the holidays, uh, but I'm certain that they would like to eat well year-round. Um, I'm actually very proud of all of you, to be completely honest, who have participated, which has been pretty much the whole church, in our outreach project so far since we've opened. done a very good job of reaching these folks, and many of you have been asking us how we can do more. I'll tell you that we need a large freezer in our basement so that we can store uh, frozen goods like meat and vegetables to be distributed to our community on a regular basis. We need someone who's willing to build some shelving 
in our storage room down there so we can begin to stockpile dried goods for the same purpose. And I'm not talking about hoarding food. I'm talking about on a regular, ongoing distribution of healthy food to the people in these houses in our neighborhood who are barely scratching out an existence. We did that in our church in Alaska. They still do. Every Friday, give out enough groceries for the week to 35 to 40 families every week. Tremendous ministry. Just keeping people alive. Pat and Denise Cassano are heading up our Compass Outreach Ministry, teaching others how to grow food, raise small livestock, uh, how to maintain our own vehicles and our houses. And ultimately, we'd like to see Compass become not only a teaching ministry, but one that oversees our food pantry and the distribution of it to the poor. Okay, there's plenty of need and plenty of ways to get involved. And just in case there's any question about the Lord's disposition toward the poor, let's quickly read Isaiah 58, 6 through 11. It says, Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them? And not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then, then he says, shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke, from, you, from your midst, excuse me, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the, de- the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Obviously, there's metaphorical language here, and spiritual poverty is implied, but make no mistake, when he refers to every yoke in verse 6, physical suffering is included in that text, without a question, okay? Let's continue on. Uh, Picking back up the story in verse 18, in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to do that to my refrigerator. (laughs) Verse 20, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. The phrase here, moving a mountain, was common. It was a common metaphor in Jewish literature at the time for doing what seemed to be impossible. Okay, so Jesus wasn't actually saying or instructing them to pray for literal mountains to be moved. He was saying, build up your faith because you're going to need it when times are tough, when you're challenged. Just before this passage and immediately after it, we see Jesus being challenged by the religious establishment. These were people who had the appearance of righteousness, but in fact were not godly men at all. The significance of cursing the fig tree was that figs generally appear the same time as the leaves do on fig trees. That's how it works with fig trees. So the fact that the fig tree was full of leaves and bloom should have indicated the presence of fruit. The tree, it should have been covered in figs. That's why Jesus bothered to go over to it in the first place to get something to eat. 
The fig tree was symbolic of the hypocrisy of the religious people who gave the appearance that they were bearing fruit when in fact there was no fruit. And Jesus was telling his disciples, his true disciples, build up your faith because you're going to need it. Okay? We live in challenging times. The church, I believe, is increasingly confronted with a combination of pressures from without to conform to the culture around us under the banner of tolerance and inclusiveness. And although there are elements of the gospel that are very tolerant and are very inclusive, Galatians 3.28, for example, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's a very inclusive statement. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is a very inclusive statement. You can share that with your Calvinist friends, if you have any. <laughs> Probably half of you are, I don't know. <laughs> but in John fourteen six, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a very exclusive and intolerant statement. So there are aspects of the gospel that are tolerant and inclusive, and we're wise to take note of those when we witness to unbelievers. But don't for a second convince yourself that it's our job as Christians as in the church to ensure that everyone likes us. Because sooner or later, if we're going to be scripturally honest with people that we encounter, we're going to have to tell them the rest of the story, which is that there is no other way to eternal life and complete fulfillment except through Jesus Christ. And that will surely offend many. In fact, it does offend many. And it can and does at times bring persecution to the church. Paul says that the gospel is offensive, and it is meant to be. In Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 1, our responsibility is to remain true to the trustworthy word as taught, Titus 1.9, even if it means offending the sensibilities of pop culture. Okay? So we experience pressure from without. We also experience pressure from within. Um, religious arrogance and hypocrisy run rampant through much of the Western church. I'm sad to say today it's true. We just walked through Matthew 18 last week, so we won't cover that ground again, but we're charged in Scripture. Make no mistake, we're charged in Scripture to judge one another within the church in order to protect her purity and her testimony to the world. Like it or not, we're held to a different standard than the rest of society, and that's the way it should be. We have to rise to that challenge. That means strengthening our faith. Having faith that can move mountains while walking in humility and service, not arrogance and hypocrisy. Okay? Now, for the next several chapters, through chapter 25, and we'll skip over some here because we don't have time, we see Jesus vacillating between telling parables and confronting the lies and challenges of the religious establishment. And at every turn, making the most of every moment, we see Jesus teaching his disciples and the crowds of people and those who were standing against him the truth of the gospel, which was unfolding before their eyes. Jesus took every opportunity, every circumstance to teach the truth to those around him. And I was thinking, how often do we go through the week? We go through the, the motions of life, these mundane rhythms, without a thought for those around us who may be hurting or, or 
asking questions, wondering why they're here on this planet. We just talked about someone today, didn't we, Daniel? It's easy to do. It's easy to get so used to our surroundings that we forget there are always teaching moments in front of us, opportunities to witness, to encourage and disciple other people constantly available to us. If we would just engage with the people that God puts in front of us every day. Jesus never wasted a moment, and neither should we. And then in the middle of those chapters in 24, the disciples begin asking Jesus about the end of the age, the end times. And so he continues to teach them, starting in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. There are a lot of perspectives within the church about the end times, and we certainly don't have time today to dissect all of those possibilities involving timing and the order of end time events, okay? But the overarching theme of Jesus' teaching to his disciples here, which continues all the way to chapter 26, is to be ready. We are to be ready at all times, ready to teach and witness, ready to worship and encourage, ready to minister, ready to love at all times. The fact is, we don't know when the advent of Christ, his second coming, is going to occur. So we're to be watchful and expectant, he says, at all times, all right? And then in chapter 26, after so much activity goes by in a week, after giving out of himself so much time and energy, and service to his disciples. After all the years and, and the crowds that were following him, after so many sermons, after all the healings, so many battles fought in the span of a few days, it's such a beautiful picture as we see Jesus gather his closest comrades, his best friends in a room for one final meal together. One more night to be together and enjoy their friendship. Can you imagine the emotion that must have been in that room as he tells them that he's going to be delivered into the hands of the enemy to die. They've been together constantly for several years now. They've shared everything. And verse 26 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I love the way Luke says it, the same event, chapter 22 and verse 19. He says, and he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
This was obviously a symbolic statement, and it was a prophetic statement. The meal was occurring before the crucifixion, so his statement is obviously looking forward toward that event. But if you think about the statement, do this in remembrance of me, and you stop to think for a moment about who he was talking to, you realize he was surely saying more than just remember my sacrifice or remember this meal. These were men that had been living with him for several years on a daily basis and experiencing the most profound individual in the most intimate way. Don't you think that do this in remembrance of me was, of course, remember my sacrifice to you, but it was also remember everything that we've been through together. We've walked a lot of miles together. We've been hungry together. We've suffered together. We've rejoiced together. We've been through a lot together. Remember me. The healings and deliverances and all of the teaching and the friendship, the correction, the companionship, the guidance he gave, the rebuke, all the adventures and hardships, the triumphs and the the joy of your life with me. Remember what I've meant to you and realize what you mean to me. Even as I'm about to give my life for you, he said, remember me. We're going to close out this service today by sharing in the Eucharist communion, the Lord's table. And we'll pick this story up next week where we left off today and finish this journey to the cross. But before we go any further today, I'd like to ask if you would please bow your heads with me. Jesus' journey to the cross, including all of the joy and sorrow, all the triumph and victory and all of the pain, all of the hard-fought battles and sacrifice and struggle. He did all of that for you. And for me. Every single one of us at one point or another in our lives is faced with a decision to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and begin to follow him or to reject that offer that he's made to every one of us and continue to attempt this life on our own. And I can tell you today that that offer is on the table right now. The church, I believe, has been guilty of misleading people into believing that we can simply say a prayer and never do one more thing the rest of our lives for Christ and expect to be welcomed by God into eternity when our time comes. I'm not convinced of that by a long shot. To be sure, we cannot earn our salvation. The Bible says that we're, we're saved by grace through faith. That's it. But it also says that without works to God and the fruit, the produce that comes from living for God, from following Christ, that same faith shrivels up and it dies. See, Jesus never invited anyone to come have a personal relationship with him. Yet over and over and over, he invited people to come follow him. Is there a relationship with Jesus when you follow him? You better believe it. Is there joy and fulfillment and peace in knowing God personally without question? How that happens is by following Jesus Christ. And the first step in that journey is by simply making a prayerful commitment to him and asking him to enter your life. It's actually very easy to do. And it is by grace through that prayer of faith that we're saved. But I have to be honest with you. Everything that comes after that is going to require a lot of sacrifice and commitment because he's looking for followers, not observers. 
And in that moment when we pray that prayer and we ask him to take away our sin, he cleanses the temple. And he begins to dwell inside of us. His voice speaks to us. His word comes alive in us. Our lives are changed forever. It's not a, it's not a, you know, it's not about being a Republican or a Democrat. It's not a political statement. It's not a social status. It's simply about following Christ in this life so that we can spend eternity with him and each other in the next. So today I'm just going to ask, is there anyone here? And I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not going to recognize you publicly. It's really between you and God. But I won't take the time to pray this prayer if there's no one here who says I need to pray it. So I'm asking you with everyone's head heads bowed. If you'd like to say, yeah, you know what? I would like to become a follower of Christ. I'd like to commit my life to him. And maybe you've done that, but it's been a long time and you haven't been following him. You prayed a prayer at some point in your life, but you say, you know what, I'd like to really follow him. We'll just pray a prayer of the whole church together. So no one's being singled out, but I'm asking if there's anyone here today who says, yeah, I need to pray that today. Would you raise your hand and you can put it right back down? Yeah, yeah. Are there others? Are there others who'd like to pray that prayer with us today? I don't want to pressure you. I just want to give you opportunity. So let's take just a moment. If you feel like the Lord is speaking to you or you're not sure, take just a moment. Okay. Any Anyone else? We're going to pray here in just a second. Anybody else? Yep. Okay. I just want to ask if you would, can we, can we say this prayer together? Would, can we repeat it out loud, a simple prayer of commitment to God? Lord, I admit to you today that I've sinned in my life and I believe that you gave up your life for me that I might be forgiven for my sins and have eternal life. And I believe that you rose from the dead and you're alive today. So I ask you now, to forgive me for all my sin. Save me and make me new. And I ask you now, Jesus, to be Lord over my life. Come live in me, and I commit to follow you the rest of my life. Amen.